my son James, who many of you know, goes on long stints where he only wants to read one book. And earlier this summer, the flavor of the month was uh, this old children's beautiful book of uh, the English myth, St. George and the Dragon. I don't know if any of you with kids have this particular book. It's beautiful. Uh, If you don't know what it is, it's really awesome. It's basically about a knight who slays a dragon, and it's great. And it's all about England, and it's fantastic. But something that grabbed my attention from this book as I read it to James 5,000 times was uh, the, the knight battles the dragon for three days. And after the first two days, he's thrown to the ground, and he's wounded, and he's defeated, and he's unconscious and on the brink of death. But after the first two days of fighting, he lands in a particular place, uh, his body does, where he is supernaturally healed and revived to go back and fight the dragon. So the first day after the fighting, it's like everything is lost and he's, the dragon's going to win. But he finds himself in this river that has this reviving healing quality and it revives him and he gets up the next day and he fights the dragon. The second day, he lands under an apple tree, the dew of which falls on him and restores him to life. And this got me thinking about how pervasive this idea of a particular place or a unique thing for healing is throughout cultural mythology all over the world. So think of all the great stories where somebody has to go on a quest in order to heal somebody or bring somebody back from something. They have to go find that fruit or that tree, or that fountain, or that elixir, or whatever. You guys feel me on this? Super common. And the fact that that's been in all of our great stories throughout the world and time is just another way of saying that humans have longed for healing throughout all those times, right? Our mythology says something about us. It says something about humanity. And we all long for emotional, physical, mental, whatever it is, healing that captures our imagination, that there might be a place where you could be healed. Um, I just finished reading a book where this little boy's mom is deathly sick, so he goes on a quest to heal her, to find something that could heal her. And when I read that story, I get the boy's heart. Of course I know what it's like to have somebody you love be sick, whatever kind of sick, and you are so torn up about it that you would do anything to make them better, right? Of course I know what it's like to need that kind of healing myself. And of course, that is why I am captivated by St. George and the Dragon. After I read it 5,000 times, every single time, it got me. Because there's a place in this world where you can actually be healed. You can find it. What if, and you know where this is going because you've heard my past three sermons, but what if, there was a place in the world where you could find healing in the middle of everything. All of us have a broken wing in some capacity. Uh, Marissa and I had a 98-year-old neighbor named Barb who was a rock star in Chicago, and uh, she would still drive and get her groceries next to 100. One time she was doing our mulch, which was like the most shameful thing to me as a human being ever. And she would tell you every single time, because she forgot your previous conversation, the three things she'd learned in all of her life that she told her family at the Olive Garden when she turned 80, every time. One of those was, nobody gets through life unscathed. It was awesome. Every time I came home and saw my neighbor, I was reminded from an 100-year-old with deep wisdom, nobody gets through life unscathed. 
None of you do. I haven't. We all long for healing. What if there was a place? And I know it sounds crazy, and I hope that we are convinced of this from the scriptures this morning, but there is such a place. We talked about how the church is the place of God's presence. It's the place of God's word. It's the place of God's feast. And today we're talking about how it is the place of God's healing. A unique place of healing. The body of Christ, the church. Okay, flip with me to Ezekiel 47. Uh, Randy read our last reading in Ezekiel, uh, and he read this one. So from now on, henceforth, let it be known, whenever we read from Ezekiel, Randy's going to read it, okay? (laughs) Uh, I don't need to ask what page it is. You guys are there. Go to Ezekiel 47. All right, I don't know if any of you have ever read the book of Ezekiel before. Um, It is one of my favorite books in the whole world. I adore the book of Ezekiel but it is not a page-turner, super popular book. It's a heavy read. Again, I love it, but the content matter is very heavy, and it's a doozy. Um, You know when sometimes you sit down to watch a movie, sometimes you just want to be entertained, and other times you're like willing to dive into that Oscar-nominated movie that has really heavy content? Ezekiel is that type of book in the Bible. Because in Ezekiel's day, there's all this idolatry and injustice that is rotting out the culture from the inside. It's, it has so much nasty stuff in the book because so much nasty stuff was happening in the culture at that time. So you get all these pictures of decay and disintegration. Um, God's rela- Let me just give you a few. God's relationship with his people is pictured as a marriage, and that marriage is being ripped apart and shredded by unfaithfulness. So you have all this, and we all understand this in relationships, these deeply twisted and knotted and brutal uh, relationships that are being ripped apart. And you get pictures of this in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, You get these images because the culture is being shredded from idolatry and injustice, dead trees being ripped out of the ground. You get pictures of sheep starving on hillsides because the leaders and the priests are all feeding themselves and there's so much greed. You get pictures of, this is the one that Randy led last time, which is maybe the most shocking, all the people becoming bones in this creepy, like, Halloween-like valley. It says that this is what it's like for Israel right now, okay? So in your mind, I want you to have a picture of a post-apocalyptic, that's always hard for me to say, post-apocalyptic, like, nightmare, dead trees, uh, buildings, like, torn down and destroyed by war and oppression. People are afraid. People are hungry. That's the context. Got it? Post-apocalyptic? Okay, in a beautiful turn, the book doesn't end there because God's amazing. Towards the end of the book, Ezekiel is given this vision of things to come by this guide. And uh, it's super awesome. This guide takes Ezekiel on this like tour of what's going to happen. And it's like the ghost of Christmas future in Scrooge, almost exactly. He has a guide who takes him with him. If you're from a different generation, it's like in a role-player video game. You know how there's always somebody who like goes with you and explains where you are? Anybody? No? Wrong crowd. Anglicans, man. Um, He's on a tour. And on the tour, the temple is the central part of it because the temple is so central to the faith and culture and geography and everything of the people. So earlier in the book, the temple had decayed like everything else. God actually left the temple because it was so corrupt. Now, with all that in mind, 
verse one. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east. So this God takes him back to the door of the new temple, and he starts to see water coming out from under it. I don't know if you guys had flooding in the, the great flood of Madison in 2018. I think in a good context, but it's, this is not supposed to happen. Usually water does not flow out. So this guy's like, look, and he sees water start trickling and seeping out from under the stones of the temple. Awesome. Then the guide continues to follow it east where it's trickling out. Look at verse 3. Going on eastward with a measuring line in his hand. So his guide's got a little ruler. The man measured a thousand cubits. And then he led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. The trickle starting to grow. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he, the guide, said to me, son of man, have you seen this? And that's not a question, that's an exclamation, because he knows he's seen it. He's like, dude, are you seeing what's happening right now? So it's rising and it's rising and it's slowly overwhelming Ezekiel. And remember the post-apocalyptic context here. In the middle of utter decay and disintegration, this river comes out of nowhere. What an amazing image. Okay, but it gets better. Look at verse 7. You might have caught this when Randy was reading it. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea, which is the Dead Sea, by the way. And when the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live and there will be very many fish. This should remind you of Genesis 1, right? For the water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from, Jesse, tell me if I'm saying this right, Engedi to Eneglaim. Yeah? Uh, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. The great sea is the Mediterranean. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They're to be left for salt probably for your cooking and your flaming young. And on the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water that for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So, in the middle of this post-apocalyptic scene, this trickle starts and it rises and it rises from the sanctuary of God until it becomes a river and it's a scene of a resurrection spring. All of a sudden, what was black and white and sepia-toned becomes technicolor. Life just starts swarming. Things start sprouting. Fruits just starting to drip off all these trees. And Ezekiel knows it's good. The food, is for, for, the food is for food. The leaves are for healing. Don't you wish you could be on that tour? 
I love that these healing waters that flow out aren't hidden. I think uh, the uh, evasiveness of healing probably comes out in lots of our stories because of how hard it is to find. It's never easy, right? Uh, But there's no Indiana Jones here. There's no, like, go up here, find this map, talk to him, do some crazy booby trap stuff, and then maybe you'll find it. In this story, God's healing and his life-giving power is coming after you. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to find it. I love how everything starts from the sanctuary. In the middle, in the center of God's worship, it's like there's this fountain, this well that's just bubbling up and just dripping out, and you cannot stop it. And I love how it gradually rises upon you. At first, you just kind of notice it, and then it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, then it's waist deep, and then you're just in it. You can't even walk through it. You just have to swim. This is a picture of restoration, of absolute healing. And it's a picture of grace because the people didn't deserve it. Nobody did something in order to make this happen. You guys catch that? This is really important. The Israelites in this scene didn't all of a sudden do everything right. And then the guide said, and look, now that the people are perfect, behold the water coming forth from the temple. Ezekiel just sees it. And all of a sudden he's swimming in it. Even though Ezekiel saw this picture, he never saw it in real life. Nobody else did. He and the people received this, and they clung to it as a vision of hope and hoped maybe they would one day see it and what that would look like, but they never did. Flip with me to John 19. So this is the gospel reading that Caitlin read. Um, Context-wise, this is the crucifixion. Let me know when you guys are there. Give me a head nod. Good. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. If you weren't here a couple weeks ago or through all these sermon series, I know a lot of you have, but some of you may have not been, we talked about how the temple was always the central place where God was among his people. But all of it foreshadowed an even greater place where God would be in the midst of his people the doorway of heaven and earth, and that is in the actual historical person of Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man. And Jesus referred to his own body as what? The temple, right? He was the place in our midst where God was, and here he is, the temple of God, offering himself on the cross in the midst of idolatry and injustice with water flowing out of his side. In Jesus, this vision in Ezekiel comes to fruition. He's the source of living water, which flows out of the temple of God for the life of the world, through the people, 
It was foreshadowed in Ezekiel and realized in actual time and space in Jesus Christ. If you know anything about Jesus, you probably know that he had a healing ministry, right? I feel like people, some of my friends who don't know anything about the Bible know Jesus did miracles, right? Because like walking on water and then like raising the dead and all this stuff. And you might know this, but in, in ritual, religious, kind of Old Testament Judaism, um, there were clean and unclean things. So in order to be the presence of God, things had to be clean and unclean. And it wasn't necessarily just sin that did this, although that certainly did. But if you touch something dead, you'd be unclean. There were unclean types of food. And you would have to go through these processes to make an unclean thing clean. I've said unclean and clean a lot in the past few seconds. The logic in the Old Testament is that if you have a clean thing and an unclean thing, when they touch, the one clean thing becomes unclean. You tracking with me? Um, that's the result, okay? And that's the way that it's always been. But with Jesus, it was the opposite. When Jesus walked throughout places and things, uh, there's so much in the, in the Gospels that are mind-boggling when you start thinking about this. But when he touches something, it becomes clean. Whether it's somebody with leprosy, whatever it is, he's this, he like uh, mutes, he, he gives away cleanliness and healing. And what does that remind you of? Ezekiel, right? The Dead Sea is the sea that the water flows into. You cannot have a better picture of like a place not conducive to life than the Dead Sea. <laughs> it's super salty if you know anything about it. And it's also called the stinking Dead Sea. And what happens? The water touches it and immediately becomes fresh. That is Jesus' healing ministry. So if you read through the Gospels, he walks into these places, and wherever he walks, it's a resurrection spring. Where something was in sepia, it becomes technicolor. I don't know why I'm picking on sepia. I like sepia. Photographers, sepia. In him, what had been uprooted was replanted. What was broken was made whole. What was unclean was made clean. What was wounded was healed. And all this, just like Ezekiel says, is an act of grace. But even more than Ezekiel, Jesus didn't just heal. He took on our own brokenness and disintegration and decay so that we could be healed. What does Isaiah 53 says? He was what for our transgressions? Wounded. He was wounded for our transgressions so that we might be healed and made whole. That is the gospel. Amen? So he experienced that death and decay. And remember, we've, we said at the beginning, and we're talking about how people have always longed, you and I have always longed for places of healing. So imagine if it started becoming known in Madison that somebody was like living water and whatever he touched became clean and whole. What do you think would happen? People would start flocking to him, right? People would start swarming around him, and that's exactly what happens. Uh, one of my favorite stories is this woman who's been sick for a long time, and she's so desperate, she crawls into the middle of a crowd, think like a parade down State Street, just to see if she could touch the garment of Jesus. She just wanted maybe even the chance to just touch him. Uh, you guys might know the story where guys are so desperate, they literally carve a hole in the roof to let their friend down because they want their friend to get healing. Like the boy in the bed, whose mom was in bed, like the story I read, who, who wanted so bad for her mom to be healed. So people are coming all around Jesus to find healing because they hear that he heals. 
But there was an issue of access because of that. If people are breaking down the roof in order to get to Jesus, there's an issue of access, and sometimes people couldn't get to him. And what about you and I? Does that mean that we missed the boat because we didn't live 2,000 years ago in first century Palestine and get to meet him, even if we had the chance? It's a real question, right? Look at, look at John again with me. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Blood and water. Beyond this vision of Ezekiel, there's more here. And as symbols, blood and water are two of the oldest in the Bible. This was really tricky for me for most of my life. I never really got this. Uh, but this is amazing. So blood has always been this sign of atonement and sacrifice. So in the Old Testament, you have a bull or a lamb, and it's kind of life for life, propitiation, atonement, big Bible words that basically are one life for another. God passes over because of the lamb, but that's a sign of the blood. Water is used in the washing cleanliness piece. So there's all these different ways where water is used to cleanse the people, to wash the people. So in the Old Testament, you have blood and water applied to the people, everywhere, all the time, to cleanse, to forgive, to heal, all these different things. Well, from the earliest centuries of the church, right after Jesus, from guys like St. John Chrysostom to St. Augustine, all the way to the reformer John Calvin and to people today, people have read this in John and pointed out something profound. Jesus entrusted two gospel sacraments to the church, and they have to do with blood, and water. What are we talking about? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? We're washed in baptism. We participate in Christ's sacrifice once and for all at the Eucharist. These graces both come from the side of Christ for the healing of the nations. Uh, last night at our dinner table, we were all talking about the hymn, Rock of Ages, which Maddie may or may not sing a verse of in the offertory. Uh, but it goes like this, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from the wounded side uh, flow. Be of sin a double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So these both come out of the side of Christ, but it gets even better. Once upon a time, God created Adam. And when Adam was in a deep sleep, God creates woman, Eve, out of his side. And the two become bone of bone, flesh of flesh, and they become unified. So think about this. Jesus is often referred to in the Bible as the new Adam, right? He's the new firstborn of creation. And when he is in the sleep of death, out of his side, the church is born represented in baptism in the Lord's Supper, in the blood and the water. The church is what? The bride of Christ, right? Isn't that amazing? And like Eve, the church is not an it. She is a she. She is the bride of Christ. So out of Christ flows healing for the world. He is the temple. I hope these dots are connecting. From which comes all the healing of the world, the living waters that flow out in a resurrection spring. But what comes out of Christ for healing? The church. 
And the church as the dwelling place of God, the body of Christ, the church has become the place, the sanctuary of God's healing. So the church is the place in the middle of decay and disintegration and brokenness from which a well bubbles up and flows over into hearts and households and neighborhoods to heal the world. And everybody has access to it because the church is everywhere, which is the genius of the wisdom of God. The Holy Spirit indwells his people, and from that, there's a resurrection spring. Um, This is the place where Jesus' healing ministry continues. So the Bible connects the healing ministry of Jesus when he would touch things and they become clean. It connects it directly to the ministry of the church, meaning that the church, because Jesus is here in the church, is the place where Jesus continues to heal and restore the world. You guys get that? Isn't that amazing? That's an audacious thing to say. But the Bible does that without shame. So it's the church where we meet Jesus, and what's uprooted is replanted. What's broken is made whole. What's decaying is restored. What's wounded is healed. The church is the place of God's healing. Um, One of my dear friends, uh, let's call him Brett. Um, he was growing up, and when he was, he was wounded uh, in an extreme way by somebody who took advantage of him when he was a little kid. And the wounds from this abuse were so severe that it caused him to run away from his family, from his faith, pretty much from everything, um, until he was in his 20s and he was by himself, kind of alone in the, the Minnesota woods. So he had rejected everything, basically. Deeply, deeply wounded. And when he was least expecting it, and this guy was not religious at all, God met him in a dream alone. And uh, he didn't know anything about the Bible, but he knew enough to know that God was calling out to him and meeting him in a dream. And when he woke up, the thing that he felt compelled to do was go and find a church. I actually have several stories like this that I could tell where God meets somebody and they have this deep inclination to go find a church. So he's speeding to go find a church, and he remembers that his folks go to this little church, and he gets to their city, and he gets to their church, and they happen to be in the middle of worship. And he walks into the church and immediately knows that he's in God's presence. So he takes off his shoes, right? Here's like all of our sermons coming together. He knew that he was in an awesome place. He could just feel it. Uh, And my friend He's crazy, so he takes off his shoes and he gets to the back and it would be like right now, a person walking in and taking off the shoes and starting to walk down the middle of the aisle. And he started walking down in the middle of worship, regardless of what everybody else thought, and he got to the front and he collapsed. And he said, in the presence of God, in this moment of vulnerability and uh, woundedness, the thing that surfaced was his pain, was his wound. And he said what surfaced for him that moment was just the question, why did you let this happen to me? And he said at that moment, he felt God reach inside and touch him, and his woundedness, his brokenness was overwhelmed and flooded by the love of Jesus in the cross. The church is the place of God's healing. God can and does meet us in all kinds of places. He could meet you in a dream in the middle of the North Woods, but I love that story because of how God uses the church in his life. God uses the church. Every single person I know who has come through amazing healing, whether it is emotional, like my friend, or physical, or whatever, it is in the church that that healing is consistent 
and that healing endures is when God uses the church as that place. What I'm saying is super insane, okay? Uh, are you tracking with me how crazy? Like, I hope if this isn't shocking to you that I'm not doing my job. I am saying that there is a place like St. George and the Dragon in the world. There's an actual place that you can go and get healing because Jesus is the one who heals and he dwells in the church. I cannot heal you, right? Anglicanism, oh my gosh, cannot heal you, <laughs> all right? You'll learn weird words, but you won't find healing. You find healing from Jesus, and he is in the church because the church is the body of Christ where he dwells. All woundedness, all wounds aren't the same, so all healing journeys aren't the same. Sometimes it's instant, sometimes it's a long time. Sometimes God doesn't heal you the way that you think or the way that you ask or want. But I cannot caveat that statement because that is what the Bible says. The church is the place in a broken world where things are being made new, where there is a resurrection spring. And if we don't draw that line and we don't make the audacious claim like the church is where God's people dwells in the power of his spirit, the place of God's healing, then we are not being faithful to the scriptures or to church history. Amen? Okay, two points of quick application. Um, the first one is I just want us to know this. I hope that this image, uh, for all of these sermon series, there's, I didn't plan this, but it's all been the same. There's this deep Old Testament vision or hope or prophecy that gets realized in Jesus. And then all of a sudden, you have this shocking thing where Jesus hands off this type of ministry to the church. You guys notice that? in every single one. And it's the same for God's healing. And I hope that this transforms our imagination to think about the church, that it is a place where God heals. Amen? Uh, so I hope just the way that you think about this, even this church plant, will shift because of this deep, deep vision for what the church is meant to be. The second is I want us to ask and act. I want us to ask for it and act on it. Um, something I've been thinking about this week is there's all different kinds, types of people who come up to Jesus because he was famous. And there's one huge group of people which are all over the Gospels, and they come up to him, and they start picking him apart. They have questions. They know what's right. They know everything about everything. They're super religious, and they're like, well, let me see if you're up to snuff. And they just start picking him apart. They ask him weird theological questions, or they're just mad at him, and they're politicians, and they're not religious, but they're mad at Jesus because they're not like you know, towing the party line or something like that. And guess what? Those people never get healed. On the one hand, because they never ask for it, but they just pick him apart. If we treat church that way, we will not experience the living water of Jesus' healing. Because again, it's the same Jesus, it's the same ministry, and it is easy to come to church and just pick it apart and think about it. All of us are at a different stage of our relationship with church, but we need to ask for it and act on it. The second group of people are people who are needy, they're hungry, they're humble. I love one time, and this has been immortalized in lots of art, uh, Jesus asked somebody, do you want to be well? And he's like, I want to be well. Those people who come to the church and say, I want to be well, they meet Jesus, same Jesus, same healing ministry. I want us to have that posture. I want us to expect this. That in a way, 
because Jesus is the Lord of all and he makes all things new, out of this church, there's going to bubble up the living water of the Holy Spirit in his word and his table and in our fellowship together. It's going to be a trickle. It's going to be ankle deep. It's going to be knee deep. It's going to be waist deep. And then we're not even going to be able to walk through it. And it's just going to pour out, at least for the time being, of Edgewood High School, Wilkie Gym. Doesn't that sound amazing? Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray this morning that you would meet us and stir in our hearts. I just, even our posture towards you, Jesus. Help us to, regardless of where we're at, take that next step. Uh, if it's just thinking about church in a different way, if it's asking and even acting on our desire for healing, whether that's in prayer ministry, during this service, or just in our hearts as we come to your table, Lord, we, we ask for the healing, restorative ministry of Jesus Christ to be present and with us in the life of this church. And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.